You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. September 10th, 2007. Episode 36. What did Jessica Alba eat for breakfast? Ethan Nickturn, recently published author and founder of The ID Project, met with Gwyn in Manhattan at the Om Yoga Studio. He talks in this podcast about how in the 21st century we're coming to Buddhism because we're already very hooked in to the world and want to work more on discovering our own minds. This is part one of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. We can just start off by talking about your path. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I grew up in a, a Buddhist family. Um, so my, my mother and father were both um, early students of Chogyam Trungpa so the Shambhala community. I remember as a kid, I mean, not being so into it, and just because I, I can't remember what I thought. I remember going to the Shambhala Center, which was not called the Shambhala Center then, and just, well, it was adults, you know. So the fun thing about going to a meditation center when you're like seven or eight is uh, making forts out of all the cushions, um, and then throwing your friends in the cushions. Um, and then, I guess... I did, they sent me to a class that was just for kids who's taught by uh, one of my favorite teachers in the Shambhala tradition, Acharya Eric Spiegel, and I was about 10, and so it was like 1988, and there were about five of us, and I remember it being pretty cool. We met like once a week for six weeks, but, and then after that, my parents would invite me to come meditate with them for like, if they were sitting for 45 minutes, they'd invite me for the first five minutes, and sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't, and I you know, I, I remember it was when I was in high school, I started really wanting to read a lot of Buddhist philosophies. And it was really interesting because it gave, just reading books gave a lot of ideas, you know, about reality. And that was one of the things I was interested in just philosophically. And it was fun to just kind of mentally have an argument, you know, with, uh, like, with Trung Rinpoche or, like, as I was reading or, like, with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh or Suzuki Roshi. Like, I don't agree with that or I do agree with that. And there was, it, but I wasn't really interested in meditation. And I think it was like senior year in high school. I had done a weekend meditation retreat like when I was 14 or 15, but it didn't really stick. Senior year in high school, I started just meditating like on my own and not wanting to tell my mother that I was doing that, like kind of purposely doing it behind her back. And it really, I mean, I think the practice just at a certain point, I was like, this is helpful, you know? And it wasn't really... I definitely wanted to do my own thing with it. I didn't want to, you know, I think I was somewhat anti doing anything like my, my parents did. Like my father's a musician, so um, people would all, when I was a kid, would say, oh, do you play a musical instrument too? And I'd be like, no, I do not. And like almost be adamant because I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. I'm a writer, you know. So, but it just, it just really became helpful. And then I think... Uh, what started happening was I realized as I was getting more into studying it philosophically on my own and at the Shambhala Center uh, entirely at that time that uh, nobody else my age was into it, which is something, you know, a lot of people have talked about. It's gotten better, but, you know, mid-late 90s at a Shambhala Center, you're an 18-year-old. You were looking at, like, 
nobody within 20 years of your age, like nobody. So you're not going to talk, you know, about Tribe Called Quest in a meditation discussion group. Um, so it was definitely like my interest in Buddhism and my interest in, in everything else, uh, including creative writing, including art, including politics, everything were very separate because you quite literally, I quite literally had like completely distinct scenes where those things were happening um, and there was like no bridge and seemingly I mean people, the the great thing about, you know, my parents and their friends at the Shambhala Center is they're all incredible, at that time were incredibly supportive, right, but it was pretty clear that they didn't know how to think about getting more young people interested in meditation or bridge those gaps, like they had their own interest set, you know and when they uh, taught meditation or taught Buddhism, they spoke, you know, the way they thought their teachers presented it, and they were trying to preserve that, and uh, they spoke from their own experience, which is, you know, awesome. The greatest thing about the Dharma is that there's, you know, it's talking about universal aspects of human experience. Like, I'm just, I'm just constantly uh, surprised and shocked how you can read a text that was written in the 7th century, and although it takes some definite cultural transformation and decoding to make sense of a lot of what's being said it's speaking about basic human things you know and there's absolutely nothing about the 7th century that's like the 21st century other than the fact that there were humans there so that's always really intriguing but at the same time it's like um, okay but there's you know a huge group of people (laughs) who are missing from this equation and it's you know young is a very broad term. When you talk, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, but young in the Buddhist community, it's probably anybody under 40 and maybe anybody under 45, which is totally different from the way it was when Buddhism spread. I mean, in, in my parents' community, in my community, the Shambhala community, when my father and mother got into it, the teacher was 30, um, and every single student, with very few exceptions, was in their 20s. Like ninety something percent of the community, so it's kind of weird that that's shifted, you know. And um, for me, that's just uh, um, it's just a mark of how actually universally. This is kind of ironic, but it's just a mark of how universally applicable meditation practices. But at the same time, how whoever's holding the the teachings and the practice, there's always a danger that you just end up um, speaking to people in your cohort and then it becomes sort of a solidified cultural thing rather than something that's meant to be uh, translated culturally and socially all the time you know I, I thought about that a lot I don't know if that's been your experience mm-hmm. too so anyway so I, how do you make it relevant yeah I mean this is sort of jumping forward a few years so. yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting one of the simple things that I try to talk about whenever I'm talking about Buddhism is um, A, to put the philosophy in the context of what's actually going on in the world, you know, which is, it's dangerous. And I noticed that some, uh, talking about this on the ID Project podcast recently, that some people don't like to talk about specific issues when they talk about Dharma, specifically specific cultural or political issues, because either you think you're going to alienate people who have different views on those issues, or you think that, 
and I think there's a lot of um, wisdom in, in this perspective. You think that you're going to take a universal principle and almost make it smaller by making it about specific things rather than about everything, which is what the Dharma is about. So I, I, I think it's safe to say that Chogyam Trungpa was probably the, the pioneer of uh, Western Buddhism, and I don't want to belittle any of the other pioneers like the IMS founders or uh, Suzuki Roshi. But uh, in terms of just really diving into the culture and, and trying to speak to a, a lexicon, I think it's really safe to say that he was the pioneer. And still, at the same time, a lot of what he did is really, if you look at it, it's incredibly dated to the early 70s in America. And I think we're also in a time where our culture is, um, the, the pace of change of our culture is accelerating faster and faster. So if you looked at Tibet or, or China or Japan, between 1470 and 2007, probably not a lot of difference in, in the cultural setup in people's, in what music was popular or anything like that. If you look at the Western world, 1970 to 2007, it's, it's a huge world of difference. And I think if you look at the Western world from now, 37 years ahead of now, it's going to be even more, you know. So I think we're definitely existing in a time where you have to really be, be conversant about these universal principles of the human mind and therefore human society in, in very culturally savvy terms. So we, and the other thing that I think is so dangerous about the unwillingness to get specific, you know, like, okay, so what does Buddhism say about war? You know, what does it say about the environment? And who should you vote for based on that? Um, is that it, it, it creates a overly generic morality in a way that it's very easy to slither out of. You know? So you can look at a Buddhist precept like not killing, which is you know, one of the major, it's the first unvirtuous action in every school of Buddhism. And you can say, okay, well, I didn't murder anybody today. <laughs> there, but, it, but that's not the end of the conversation. It's, you know, what does it say about what you eat? Or what does it say about the conditions under which your clothing were made? Or what does it say about living in a country that invades other countries? You know, and, you know, all of these issues, and when we talk about something like interdependence, the thing is they all get incredibly complex. So it's the, the specificity of it is not saying that we should have some rigid moral code of right and wrong, but we should really be wanting to examine the world in terms of uh, in terms of these principles on a specific basis. And I think if you if you read a lot of Buddhist books that have been published in the West, and this is just my feeling, but a lot of other people I've talked to agree with this, in the last 35 years, they speak about moral principles and the mind in, in very general terms that are really helpful, you know, and insightful. They don't get a very specific within what they're talking about, you know, all the time. And Therefore, I think it, it's definitely, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think a lot of Buddhist books and Buddhist media in the West world, it's definitely written to and for a particular demographic. Mm. And it's kind of hidden because it's, it's sort of written to this kind of general mainstream, but interested in self-help, new age, alternative uh, culture. But... Um, it doesn't always intersect with, um, you know, people who are really interested in the world. You know, I don't think a lot of Dharma books are written, they're written mostly as self-help books, not really as a how does this interdependent 
culture and the world that we live in in 2007 actually work, you know? And, you know, sometimes anecdotally, I think a lot of really good Dharma books speak about how we have to train our mind because there's so much suffering in the world. But that's pretty much all they say about what's specifically going on in the world. Um, and then, obviously, there's, there's, you know, some strong counterexamples to that, like Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, who speaks, you know, he's very political and obviously in a, in a Buddhist way. I mean, he's not, I wouldn't quite call him a political revolutionary, but he's closer than a lot of Buddhist teachers. But still, he's an Asian monk. So how much, you know, there's still sort of a cultural exoticism there. I think his teachings are universal, universally applied as well. So somehow he's able to make it applicable in 2007, but... I think it's going to, his wisdom will, like, withstand the test of time. Yeah. So, you know, the, it, I, he wrote about the Vietnam War as well. I mean, so it doesn't matter which war it is, but just the fact that people are talking, that he's right. talking about it and that, you know, he's uh, answering a lot of mm-hmm. the questions that people have about nonviolence or, or what have you. Right. But I think, I mean, maybe something that you're touching on here is that a lot of those books aren't really addressing how to engage our Buddhism, like how to get off the cushion and get out in the world right. and, and, and do things proactively, you know, right. like engaged Buddhism. Yeah. Or you could even take it in the other direction. It's like how the, really the way I wrote uh, One City was thinking about how in a pre-existing interest in the way the world works culturally, politically, artistically would lead you to want to examine your own mind. Hmm. Which is where I think a lot of our generation, broadly defined, is going to come to meditation from. It's, it's almost like, um, I think with a lot of Buddhist books, they begin with self-help. And then because you're interested in the way suffering works, you start looking at other people, developing compassion, etc. I think the people, since our, our generation, and again, I mean the under 40 or under 45 generation, were so media savvy that we're already hooked into the world and we're already really interested in how culture works, how pop culture works, um, how politics works, what's going on on this blog over here. And so we already feel connected to the world and the missing piece is actually turning inward and seeing what we have, what our state of mind has as an interface with the world. How is the world affecting our state of mind and how is our state of mind affecting the world? So I think it's almost like the mirror image in, in a way. I mean, that's, that's just the way I think about that. Our generation, again, broad generation, is inherently interested in the world, and that might lead us to get interested in our own minds. Whereas I think the way most Buddhist books in the West have been written, they've been written from people who are interested in conquering or at least dealing with the turmoil of their own mind, and then at some point in that investigation, they decide it's a good idea to try to become more compassionate towards others. Mm. Um, that's just, a, I mean, that's obviously speaking in broad generalizations, but I do encounter that feeling, at least reading and hearing the way a lot of first-generation Western Buddhist teachers present Dharma. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely does seem like it's a me first, and then because you get interested in me, you get interested in the world, and now I think what's going on is people are so connected to the world, almost over in an overstimulated kind of way, that then it's like, oh, okay, so what am I actually doing in the world? In your book, you, you do talk about the real, the real internet, like real life being the real internet. Right. And I, I'm not quite clear. I mean, you don't go into it too much more, but I think that was a really kind of intriguing and 
perhaps contentious point that you made, uh, that those of us who are living out our lives online or half online or whatever, I'm one of them probably, uh, are perhaps we're missing the real internet, which is swirling all around us every mm-hmm. day. So, it, you, you know, you only touched on it, but I'd like to kind of expand on that if we can. Yeah. Well, I don't think I meant that we're, that the, the, uh, maybe I meant the big internet versus the little internet, that what we think of as the internet is part of, uh, this larger scheme that's been around forever. That's, you know, the total organic nature of interwoven reality where everything is already connected and dependent upon, uh, everything. And I, I illustrate that at the beginning of the book with just, um, spending a, a boring day in my life in New York City and all the places I either notice interdependence or completely miss, you know, what's happening. And so I think there is what I was trying to kind of touch on and allude to, and I think later in the book I try to come back to it, is that in a way the internet generation spends a lot of time connecting. Like you can be Facebook friends with somebody in South Korea, which is kind of amazing, you know, or you can send a text message to a hundred people and a hundred people show up someplace tomorrow. That's I mean, that's an amazing uh, interconnectedness. But at the same time, we, our notion of connection in a lot of ways has very strong isolationist tendencies, which cause us to actually miss what's going on around us and use, it's almost this faux interconnectedness that can be made into real interconnectedness and a lot of times is. So it's, it's this interesting paradoxical relationship, I think, that our, our generation is very uh, world savvy is very globally connected and at the same time because we're so in our little zone of the world which we call you know which would be the little internet we miss the real internet which is all of the human and organic and urban and suburban and rural relationships that make up our reality so i didn't mean to say that that's that the small internet or the cyber net experience isn't real experience but it has this it definitely has this ability to make us think we're connecting when we're actually isolated Hmm. can you say anything else about perhaps tools or skills we can create to you know break through the isolation to to create a real life connection well i think of it and suppose isn't this a one of my teachers said that it's an actual clinical condition now when uh, internet addiction is actually being clinically diagnosed. So um, just knowing, you know, there's always, it's not really what we use because tools, and this is the amazing thing, and I think, you know, my study of Tibetan Buddhism really draws this out. It's not how you use any of the, it's not the things themselves that you use in your life. any of the tools it's how we interact with them so you know this little laptop it can be a tool for you compassionately and this is i know what you're trying to use it for compassionately connecting with a larger world and connecting people with a larger world but i know probably if you're anything like me there have been times when you've been on this laptop surfing things that you've already you know read four times and and just you know what's jessica alba up to i mean <laughs> can't think of the last time i searched that but okay. now <laughs> i know now i know you're reading this <laughs> yeah it's interesting uh i had that i used to get into arguments with my mom who's a 
super great lady and Buddhist practitioner because she would love to watch entertainment tonight. Because it was, <laughs> she said it was just her garbage time and everybody needs garbage time. I try to argue that Buddhists shouldn't need garbage time. But anyway, we what's can, your garbage uh, time, Ethan? My garbage time. Uh, <laughs> what has it been recently? Um, I don't know. Do you play Rise of Nations? No, I don't play. <laughs> I play Sudoku on my on my MacBook, uh, which I've become kind of addicted to. And you know, Sudoku supposedly is they, they marketed to all these old elderly people because it's good for memory retention, right? Um, and you see how it's stimulating you, but also you see how it just very quickly morphs into a vicious escape. And that's what I think is so interesting about where our generation is, is that you can use the tools of our multimedia, like podcasting. And so you can have a, and I can have a radio show now, where 10 years ago, good luck, you know, trying to get onto Clear Channel with a, a radio show. We can use those to connect and spread compassionate messages and actually get people to think about what's going on in their life and view themselves as part of a larger organic human community. Or we can use them to just see what Jessica Alba ate, where she ate breakfast yesterday. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, the, the, the sort of faux connectedness. Because when you spend four hours figuring out, and Gwen doesn't do this, but <laughs> Ethan doesn't do it, but I'm sort of embarrassed to even know who Jessica Alba is. <laughs> when you spend four hours, you know, thinking about what Jessica Alba had for breakfast and you have the tools to Google and search that, uh, it brings a sense of faux connectedness, which I think is... Uh, you know, a, a longing for a real connectedness, not to Jessica Alba, but to a lot of other people and feeling like a part of a larger community, which, you know, that that's a, that's another thing about where we are is I think a lot of the, and this is, you know, some of my more radical friends, this is one of the main critiques of capitalist culture in general is that you can um, absorb and you can co-opt and commodify the positive human qualities that we all seek into just a way to become more and more consumeristic and isolated, you know, so the, the, the reason we have a celebrity culture is because people want to feel connected to other people, you know, and actually do want to look up to other people which is something that's existed in every culture but um, the people we look up to end up being, generally speaking more screwed up than the rest of us and um, it's not really a mark of real connection but it feels like we're connecting to something. And it's that, that longing for connection, which is really the awareness of interdependence, you know, which is what I talk about. That's interesting because it's the, the tricks of, you know, samsara or confusion, I think, are getting trickier. And so I think what we're facing is the ability to feel connected when we're actually not. But just like what Buddhism has been saying forever, the feeling of the desire to be connected can be transformed into actual connection using the same tools, using our media, you know? So that's, I mean, that's what I was going for with the real internet idea. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado.
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.